everyone. There's a bit of a, a laugh when uh, Yinji was uh, asking if you've seen anyone grow in height. I don't know why. There's a bit of a laugh for that. Um, Yes, it's a pleasure to see everyone growing uh, in their faith and in their love for Jesus. Well, welcome to New Life. Uh, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Um, some big news this week, if you haven't seen already. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II uh, passed away. And I just had a quick fact for you guys um, as I was kind of reading a little bit about it. Did you know that there have been 16 prime ministers in Australia in the time that Elizabeth was reigning? She became queen at the age of 25. And so, you know, anyone 25 and over, you kind of think about where she was at. Uh, the first prime minister when she was around was Robert Menzies, who was born all the way back in 1894. So in the 1800s, uh, which is a bit of a surprise, right? So the queen reigned for more than triple the amount of time that new life has existed. And uh, yet at the same time, we remember that we continue under the sovereign rule of our King Jesus. How about we pray? Uh, we'll get into the sermon today. Father, we gather together um, as your holy people, as a people that you have called into this gathering place, the people that you call new life, and the people that you call by a new name. Indeed, Lord, um, as was prayed earlier, as was discussed earlier, we are not defined by the shame of our past. Uh, we're not defined by yesterday's failures, but we're defined, Lord, uh, by what your son Jesus did on the cross. Lord, the fact that we can accept this, the fact that we can belong to your family, we don't want this to be lost on us, but we want this to define our everyday. Would you help the wisdom of the cross to define not only the fact that we enter into your family, every single day of our lives and the disposition of our hearts towards you. We want to worship you. We want to seek you. We want to see your son seated upon the throne for an eternity. We want to worship him and we want to call him sovereign, not only over this earth, but over our lives. And so help us, Lord, to submit before you, to commit our lives to you and to seek you. And indeed, we submit ourselves before your word this morning, and we pray, Lord, that it could have a life-transforming effect upon our hearts, that we will be able to seek you and to love you, deepen our love, deepen our growth in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, we live in a time where leadership is under some special scrutiny, and for good reason. You know, we've seen a lot of different people come and go under the public eye uh, due to personal scandals coming to light, you know, whether it be people outside of the Christian sphere or people within the Christian sphere as well. It's no different in the Christian world. You know, there's a large number of Christian leaders that many have given allegiance to in the past. Many have said, I really sit under this person's teaching. I really respect this par particular leader. And we've had just as many scandals and controversies that have come to light, uh, whether in, you know, the time of I guess their, their best years, or even in the years after their death, that have led to res resignations, firings, all sorts of things, even entire podcasts dedicated to such topics as well. Now we've heard in recent weeks, if you've been with us from our series in 1 Corinthians, that this level of allegiance should never be given to leaders 
not even to Christian leaders. This level of allegiance should never be given to any sort of leaders. So the question then is, how should we relate to the church and its leaders? How should we actually relate to the church and its leaders? Paul provides three metaphors for the church and its leaders in our passage today. He talks about uh, the church and its leaders being God's cultivated field in the first four verses there. Then he talks about God's building in the next few verses. And finally, he talks about God's garden temple. And you'll notice that it kind of covers over uh, a large portion of those passages. Now first, in talking about the church in Corinth as God's cultivated field, and Christian leaders as workers in this field, Paul is directly opposing the view of the people of the church in Corinth in their imbalanced allegiance given to certain leaders. Okay, he recognizes that this is where they're coming from. He recognizes that this is a part of their culture, but he's directly opposing it at the same time. His desire is for a certain, for the people of Corinth to stop acting like mere humans, to stop acting like mere humans, as he stated back in verse 4, which they're doing by either glamorizing or disparaging their leaders. This is not something that we should do. You know, just the fact that we shouldn't follow these leaders blindly shouldn't lead us to also disparage these leaders, shouldn't lead us to tear down these leaders either. It makes no sense to do this. If you read with me verses 5 to 6, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Workers in the field are simply serving the owner of the field. What are these leaders in and of themselves? Oftentimes, we're quite desperate as people to have a human face to lead us. We like to have someone that we can relate to directly. We like to have someone that we can look in the face. Whether it's because of our heart's desire for perhaps a father figure that we never had. Or because of a prideful desire to elevate ourselves on the coattails of someone that we view as above our station. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants. To give a more contextual example, what are the pastors around Sydney? These are a few of the pastors that exist in Sydney, not all of them, obviously. What am I? We are mere servants of the Lord, working together for the glory of God. We're not in rivalry with one another. We're not better than one another. We're not worse than one another. We are mere servants with different roles. The word that's being used here for servants is the word diakonos. That's where we get the English word deacon from. And it's used to talk about someone who assists in the work that's being taken place. They help out by doing the work that doesn't require some sort of special skill. This is who Paul is talking about when he talks about Apollos and Paul and all of us. This is the work that doesn't require some sort of special skill. And so to call these ministers servants, especially to the people of Corinth, would have been shocking. It has the connotations of a lower social class, which is exactly the opposite of what the people of Corinth were desiring when they were trying to ride on the coattails by saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. They desired some 
intelligence, they desired some rhetorical skill, they desired someone to elevate their own status, not someone to lower it by being mere servants. These aren't the intellectual elites that the Corinthian people desired to align themselves with. If anything, they're like farmhands, manual laborers that the Corinthian elite would hate to be associated with. Who would take pride in being attached to a servant? Who would take pride in saying, I follow a servant? Ironically, we do, because we have a love for our Lord Jesus Christ who came to serve and not to be served. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's look at verses six to nine. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Whoever ends up planting or watering, the point is that it is God who gives the growth. Whatever work that's being undertaken, it's God who's giving the growth. It's not the eloquence of the preacher. It's not the magnetic charisma of a leader. But it's the gospel progressing because of God. God is the one that progresses the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, in verse 7, Paul states quite plainly that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything compared to God. Strong statement. Paul and Apollos as workers in the field are nothing in comparison to the one who owns the field. Who not only owns the field, but who causes the growth, who gives life to the harvest. Quick note for clarity here. Paul is not saying that Christian leaders have no value at all, okay? You don't have to tell me I have no value at all, okay? He talks elsewhere in his letters about how the Galatians would have torn out their eyes for him, how the, Th the Thessalonians became imitators of him. Clearly, there's a good mutual respect there. But the problem is, as mere humans, what Paul is saying is that we can go a little bit too far sometimes when it comes to this kind of respect. We can go over the top into a very weird loyalty, and if this causes division of any sort, or if it distracts from the gospel and our Christ-centeredness, something has gone awfully wrong. All Christian leaders have the same rank, so to speak. We read in verse 8 that he who plants and he who waters are one. There shouldn't be some sort of selective preference for church members when it comes to their leaders. Because God, he is the field owner. He is the one who sets these people to work. There's no need for an assessment on our part about how the laborer works. Because God is the field owner, sees, and he knows how the workers are working the field. And each will be rewarded or not rewarded according to his labors, scripture tells us. Now, there definitely shouldn't be any sort of rivalry or competition between these leaders because we are God's co-workers. And so that will be senseless as well. It's a question of identity. We're a bit remo removed from this in our individualistic society. But at this time period, at this location, personal identity could be figured out by answering this question. Whose are you? Not who are you, but whose are you? 
This is a world where slavery was in full effect, where sexual ethics were defined by property rights. Everyone belonged to someone else in this world. So Paul states here, the people of the church in Corinth and their leaders all belong to God. No leader could ever imply that they were the inspired ones, that they were the ones who had all the truth and the gifts and authority over others. All of them are co-workers. So pride must be thrown aside, and in humility, leaders must discourage unhealthy allegiance for the church belongs to God. In fact, the church is not only God's field, but God's building as well. Paul, in this part of the passage, in verses 10 to 15, he talks about a close look at Christian leaders and the judgment that awaits their work, the work of the wise and unwise builders of the church. We're all going to appear before Christ on the judgment seat one day. We're told this in 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14. We're told this in various places. God is the owner of the building, and he's going to inspect the work of each builder. None of us just reside in the building. If any of you have ever done any sort of inspections for the house that you live in, you probably know a little bit about this. I remember the first time that I ever moved out of home. Okay? And so we moved into an apartment, me and a couple of friends, and we did an inspection. Nowadays, I hear that you get like 40, 50 people to an inspection. That seems too much to me. At that time, the three of us were the only ones inspecting the place. And I probably should have known at that point that, you know, we're probably going to get it, right? But I had no idea what I was looking for. I just kind of walked in, and I was like, it's an apartment, all right. There's some rooms. This will be my room. What should I be looking for? But I didn't want to ask that sort of question to the real estate agent because I didn't want to be ripped off, and so I ended up ripped off anyway. With each new accommodation that I lived in, though, I began to know more and more about what I should be looking out for. Some of you guys who have lived in a few different places, you've probably gone through this, right? What would make living there uncomfortable? What is it that I should be looking out for? How much more for a master builder, then? How much more for a master builder who could look at the craftsmanship of the building itself, the materials used in construction, if any shortcuts were taken, and then they could assess accordingly. And then, how much more for God? Read with me verses 10 to 11. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. One more little side note when it comes to the works that are undertaken for the building of the church. Paul wants to make sure that there is no room for mistake when it comes to works versus grace. You know, we talk about grace quite often, but I think we kind of default towards works at a certain point. That first part of the verse uh, in verse 10 tells us that everything that Paul did was according to God's grace given to him. Everything that he undertakes is according to God's grace. There's no personal credit to be taken there, as you can see from the rest of the passage up until this point even given the fact that Paul is the one who planted the church in Corinth. And because of this, we know that he is the one that laid the foundation for the work to be done. 
could Paul have continued to do all the work on his own in the church in Corinth or in any of the other churches that he planted? In the ancient world, it wasn't possible to build great buildings without coworkers. You know, you might hear about it these days with the, all sorts of tools that we have. If we look at Herod's temple in Jerusalem, you know, it, it took tens of thousands of workers over 70 years to build this temple. And this is the entire reign of the Queen of England, right? Workers could be born, they could work on the building, they could move on to other projects, they could die, they could retire before it was completed. It took a great many people, a great number of years in order to build this building. Would it make sense to praise the work of a singular person, a singular worker among these tens of thousands of workers? No, it's the overall project that's important. Everyone coming together to do their work, to play their role. Paul's talking about laying down the foundation. That's not him elevating his own status above the coworkers either. When we think about foundation these days, I think we think that it's part of the most important thing. But the primary purpose of all that he's done up until this point is to build up the church for the glory of God. Everyone who works at building does this by playing their own role, not for their own glory. Should we turn off the heaters? It's getting a little warm, right? Yeah? People are, people are getting sleepy with the heaters. I know when we talk metaphors, it's a little bit harder, okay? So I think we got the photo up, right? It's about to get a little bit warmer for me, okay? When I think about the, uh, the pastors that have come, yes, that is me, okay? When I think about the pastors that have come and gone at New Life, most recently with the pastors that have planted Kingsway, I thank God for them. I thank God that there's no sort of weird rivalry between us. I thank God especially because they've laid a firm foundation in Jesus Christ here. It's not a question of comparison. It's not a question about what we did in comparison to one another or how far we've come as a church or anything like that. It's just a difference in roles with a change of seasons. I was talking to Pastor Paul yesterday at a wedding. I mentioned that I was gonna use this photo and I mentioned how he hasn't changed at all. He looks exactly the same, look at me. <laughs> What's wrong with my hair, right? <laughs> all of my photos have very, anyway. All right, New Life is a church that's not founded upon just our doctrine or our style of leadership, but it's as we say each week. We gather to glorify God in the gospel of grace. Our crucified savior, Jesus Christ. This is who it's about, not about the leader. He's the one who lived and died and rose again for us. And scripture has been telling us, 1 Corinthians has been telling us, this is who it's about. Verses 12 to 15. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Whatever work is undertaken 
by the pastor, by the worker in the field, and upon the building. The cross is the key to not only coming in, but to a continued renewal of grace in all of our lives. It's the cross. Here's one way that you can relate to Christian leaders. It's a doctrine of the cross that treats the gospel as something more than just an entry point into Christianity. This cannot be the case. Like, if you can only think of the gospel as the entryway into Christianity, it points to a confused and an inadequate theology. It's probably indicative of leaning upon human wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God centers, as we've seen in recent weeks, upon the message of the cross. It's a cross that continues to define and shape our lives and our hearts and every day. In speaking of God's field and God's building, Paul isn't just giving two separate metaphors here either. They're related in that he's speaking about the temple, as we see in verses 16 to 17. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. This talk about a temple, you know, it's a little bit unfamiliar to us, I think, because, you know, we don't attend temple, right? But it would cause anyone from this time period to think back to not Herod's temple, but about the temple that used to be the center of life for the people of Israel. This is the temple that they used to worship at. In building the original temple, Solomon built with the foundation of costly stones, of gold and silver. And so you can see clearly Paul is talking about these things. He's referencing back to Solomon's time and Solomon's temple. Paul is comparing the church in Corinth to not just any field or any building, not just any temple, but the majestic garden temple that Solomon built, the original one. I can't stress how shocking this image is, okay? This is a little bit removed from us, okay? But we might not bat an eyelid because we who have grown up at church maybe or otherwise we've heard through you know, advertisements or whatever that our bodies are our temples. We might not have a great idea in our minds about what this temple even looks like. You know, we meet in an old factory building after all. No one's banging down our door to you know, get married here, okay? But Solomon's temple was a centerpiece of Jewish life. People would make yearly trips to Jerusalem pilgrimages in order to worship at this temple because they really thought this is the place where I meet with God. This is how grandiose this building was. Theologically, the belief was that the temple would last forever. It would be around forever. It would outlive all of them. That the nations would be judged at this temple. And so when this temple was destroyed, it was the lowest point in Israel's history. People wept. Here's Paul stating quite plainly that the temple, this majestic, glorious, gold and silver inlaid, the temple that still weighed painfully upon the minds of believers, was this little church in Corinth full of divided Gentile believers who weren't even of the bloodline of the Israelites. Now, New Life, we are this temple. When we sing that song, Resurrender, we are the temple. We are God's garden temple. We're the dwelling place of God. Not you singularly, but we together, you plural. 
we are the dwelling place of God. And the spirit of God lives in us. And so we must become what we truly are. You are the temple, and so you must become what this means. Don't you know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God lives in you, Paul says. The conduct of the people of the church in Corinth shows that they might be familiar with this phrase, but they don't really seem to live out this knowledge. What is the way that you live your life say about the way that you believe this truth? that you are God's temple and his spirit lives in you. The final part of our passage today, it ties everything together when it comes to the wisdom of the cross and the divisions in the church in Corinth surrounding Christian leaders. Read with me verses 21 to 23. So let no one boast in human leaders for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Paul says everything is yours. As workers belonging to the same building project, which is the church, as farmhands belonging to the same field, again, the church, division in the church makes no sense you're gonna inevitably have different types of workers working on a building project. You're gonna have some farmhands that like to get dirt under their fingernails, some that like to use all sorts of tools. It would severely hamper us new life. It would severely hamper all of the church, all around the world, to be limited to one expression of faith, one style of preaching, one style of singing, how we do evangelism, and what type of leaders that we like. It would severely hamper us. When t Paul talks about everything belonging to the people of the church in Corinth, he defines it out by talking about the leaders that they like, the powers governing this life, so he talks about the world, life, and death, and the time, the present, and the things to come. The Corinthians, they believe that they belong to different leaders. I belong to Apollos, I belong to Paul. But Paul says the reverse is true. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're servants of Christ who are working to build God's garden temple. And so as a church in Corinth is the garden temple, they're workers that belong to the people of Corinth. It doesn't make sense for it to be the reverse. The leaders actually belong to the Corinthians, not the other way around. We don't follow after Christian leaders. Christian leaders belong to us, the church, altogether. It makes no sense for the church to be swayed into allegiance to certain leaders like the rest of the world around them, because the world belongs to them. The meek shall inherit the earth, we're told. This world in its present form will be condemned, we're told. The church in Corinth, they're not beholden to the fear of life nor death, because they know the one that gives them eternal life. They belong to him. New life. We, as believers in Christ, belong to God. But not only do we belong to him, we boast in him. We have the mind of Christ. And we possess all things. 
Nothing in this world can sway us any longer. We have no fear of the life that we live now. We have no fear of the death to come because we know who holds the keys to eternal life and we belong to him because we're God's garden temple. How about we pray together? Father, oftentimes we don't feel very beautiful. We don't feel very far removed from the shame or the guilt that we go through in our daily lives. And yet in you, our sin is removed as far from us as the east is from the west because of what your son Jesus did. He came and he lived and he died and he lived again that we might live a life in you that we might be called your garden temple, that we might be the place where your spirit dwells. And so we want to live this knowledge out. We know now, Lord, that we are your garden temple. Would you help us to live in this knowledge? Would you help us, Lord, to become what we truly are? We don't want to be people that chase after different leaders. We don't want to be people that chase after our own theologies or our own wisdom and understanding. But we want to turn to you and we want to be defined and shaped by the wisdom of the cross that our lives might be cross-shaped, that our hearts might be defined by you. Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you help us, Lord, to commit our lives to you, to seek you to seek to build this church together. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.